Hello and welcome to Transforming Education, a podcast brought to you by VO. In this episode, we will be exploring the topic of immersive education with David Halliwell, founding director of LifeCast Body Simulation. David has been working in the world of immersive education for almost 40 years, starting his career as a combat medic covering the Falklands and other European countries before working in the NHS as a training officer and eventually head of education. Through David's current role, he develops lifelike mannequins to support clinical education through immersive training methods. In this episode, we dive into David's experience in immersive education and question how immersive education has transformed over the years and look for key trends and takeaways for the future. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Good morning, Dave. Thank you so much for joining me today for the Transforming Education podcast. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Very good. It's a a real pleasure to have you joining us this morning. And I mean, you've had such an incredible career in the world of immersive education and and simulation. I thought it might be a really good thing if we could start and kick off this conversation with you, perhaps um, outlining what you do for a living for for me and and our guests. Sure. So uh, I I guess my journey started in in the sort of 1980s. Um, and I left school. I joined the army as a as a military medic, um, and then after that, I uh, moved into the NHS into paramedicine um, and climbed my way through the ranks, uh, ending up as head of education for the Southwestern Ambulance Service. So looking after about three thousand learners, uh, a few universities, um, some helicopters, some boats, all sorts wow. of strange things. So yeah, quite a you know quite an exciting, I suppose, career uh, running through to. Uh, the pinnacle, which was 2012 with the Olympic Games um, and being a strategic commander for some Olympic events. After that, I moved out to work in the Middle East to run the World Cup, which is uh, is happening at the moment. Um, wow. And, uh, to help put some of the infrastructure in place uh, specifically for key regions, I suppose, within uh, within the Middle East. Um, and that was that was great. I did that for about a year. Um, but I miss my family and there were a few other things going on. And it, it really gave me time, A, to break away from my NHS career and B, think about, you know, what I actually enjoyed doing for a living, uh, which was all of the all of the education stuff that had gone before. And so with my business partner, Rob Clark, we, uh, we started a little business literally uh, while we were sitting out in the Middle East. Um, and... Uh, and we started focusing on how could we improve medical education. Um, and we put our money where our mouth was. And, you know, we, we started off um, with a little bit of investment. And then over the years, that's grown. Um, about five years ago, six years ago, we, uh, we were very frustrated with the level of realisms of mannequins. And so we, uh, we teamed up with the team at Elstree Movie Studios set up another business uh, focusing on on the manufacturing of medical models. Um, and that's been very successful. Um, we've we've now got a partner organization, Echo, Echo Healthcare, based out in Sarasota, who do the bulk of the manufacturing of our adults for us and allow the UK team to focus on R&D really these days and developing new projects. So it's, it's been a crazy, crazy career, really spanning sort of you know, the last 40 years, um, but all of that time with an educational focus 
Um, and I almost feel like poacher turned gamekeeper these days. You know, it's very much, uh, you know, you, you start off as a as an educationalist and then suddenly overnight you're a, an entrepreneur and all of these other things that come with it. So that's been, you know, it's taken a lot of getting used to, but, you know, we've, we've done very well. You know, we've, we're very successful as a business. We're producing products that we're proud of. Um, and our, you know, our team out in the USA, equally, we're very proud of the work that they produce. So it's been a fascinating journey. So these days, I say to people, I make mannequins for a living, and you know, and that's uh, that's the bulk of what I do these days. And mannequins are obviously quite a large part of immersive education. But to some of our listeners who've maybe not heard of this term before, how would you explain what immersive education is, and what's the purpose of it? Sure. So I, again, going back a few years, I um, I started my PhD at Bournemouth University. And I was looking at the depth of learning and how could I how could I make my uh, learners sort of understand and and be inquisitive and go deeper than the rubbish that they were being taught every day, and could they ask that why question every time? And really, for me, my my focus, I suppose, for the last twenty years has been about how can I make a clinician safer in their practice um, and expose them to all of the other all of the other things and that could be you know because i work in pre-hospital care you know I, I have to create a clinician who can work with the youngest possible baby at a 22 week plus two days you know minimum age of viability and they should be able to resuscitate that size of person as equally well as a 110 year old and so they have to be able to span every age gap Similarly, they have to be able to deal with pretty much any medical condition. And at the same time, they have to be able to work in any environment. So again, you know, the, the problems that we've always had is how do I expose people to everything that I want them to see? How do I expose them to small, small babies, you know, with congenital heart defects who happen to be on a train? You know, how, how do I recreate those scenarios and layer up all of those bits of education for people and i suppose that's really how i view immersive education is that we, you know we have an onion and we have lots of rings of the onion and i think our role as educators is to start off by teaching the core of the onion and then slowly to build up those extra layers and for me the layers are environmental they're equipment orientated, they're patient orientated, but they're also how we have that relationship with the students. So psychological safety and all of those other things that come into, into any educational event. Um, over the years, I've dabbled with immersive classrooms as a way of you know um, transporting people to any environment that, that I can. So we take a 360 camera, we record a piece of footage maybe on the underground, and then we play that back on the walls around the student with all of the noise and all of the movement and everything else that happens. And uh, and that becomes an immersive environment where the students can then practice those skills in an environment that's not their normal you know, classroom environment. Um, it's, it's just projected on the walls, but it actually makes the student feel as though they're they're in a different environment. It's a little bit like being inside a VR headset, I suppose, is the best way to describe that. Um, but, you know, we, uh, I suppose about eight years ago, we, we opened our own training center as part of our research. And, you know, we had three immersive classrooms and we could adjust the temperature in the classrooms, we could adjust the lighting. We had tiered seating. 
And we were working with global specialists around the world to say, well, actually, how does this stuff impact on, on learner behavior? You know, what happens when we, when we make the room hotter? How do they behave? When we take it cold, what, what, you know, what difference does it make? Um, and the tiered seating was a great example. You know, where do students choose to sit if they've, if they've got an auditorium type seating in their classroom? Do they sit at the back? Do they sit in the middle? Do they sit at the front? Do they move around? Um, and again, there's a, a, a guy called Professor Stephen Heppel um, mm. based down here at Bournemouth who'd done a lot of stuff about classrooms and their effect on learners. And, you know, e even getting down to how much CO2 do a group of 30 students breathe out and what's the effect of that carbon dioxide on their brain? Uh, because, you know, CO2 makes the blood vessels in your brain shrink. So, you know, if you've got 30 students in there in a, in a locked environment with no air breathing through it, you know, eventually people are going to start and fall asleep and they're falling asleep, not because you're, you're a boring lecturer, but they're falling asleep because the CO2 levels in the classroom have crept up. And, or because they're out the night before partying or, or well, like, there's that going as well. to a lecture. There's definitely that part. There's definitely <laughs> that part. But it's, you know, it's, it's been fascinating to be surrounded by, by people who just view the world very differently than the rest of us. And, you know, it's been a real privilege to be around these guys, really. And, I mean, some of the things that you meant, touched upon there about immersive education is around the, I guess, the concept of making the environment more realistic, hmm. more familiar to what the environment may be like once someone is actually in the field, shall we say. Um, yeah. You gave that example of the tube. You know, there are instances where paramedic teams will have to operate within that environment and rescue people from tracks or or situations in that environment. Um, and I was talking recently to another podcast guest called Professor James Field, um, which which was just released recently. And we he does a lot of work in simulation dentistry. We were talking about how difficult it is to simulate dentistry effectively compared to being a pilot, for instance, where everything yeah. is yeah. the same. But when you're drilling into someone's mouth, Obviously, how do you simulate the feel of the tooth in a way that's natural? Because there's a big learning gap between, you know, simulating something and then and then doing it in real life. And I know that the world of immersive education has advanced significantly um, with companies like yours, kind mm. of push, pushing things forward over the last um, kind of couple of years. How have you seen? improvements in making things more realistic for trainees and for people that are learning um, clinical skills. How have you seen that journey progress over the years since you've, you've been working in the field? It's been great. I mean, our, our journey, you know, with the, with the mannequins is only six years old and we started off with one baby um, yeah. and, and it was a baby that had been used on Call the Midwife or The Crown or one of those TV series. And when I looked at the baby, the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe it wasn't a real baby. It, it had that, you know, it had that effect on me. The colouring was right, the movement was right, everything about it said that's a real baby. Even when I picked it up, it was warm because they put it on the radiator and they got it to body temperature to freak me out completely. And I and I just couldn't get my head around it. And it took me quite a few days to think, well, why is that so different than what we traditionally use, this hard plastic stuff? And, you know, what if it was creating emotions in me, because it did, it really did. It brought back a lot of flashbacks of jobs that I'd been to and, 
you know, was I prepared for this and was I prepared for that? And, um, uh, and it set me off on a completely different tangent, I think. And, you know, we've been, we've been amazingly lucky to work with some of the top neonatologists in the world who help us design our babies. You know, we've just released a little girl with Down syndrome, a little mm. girl called Gwen, who we copied. She lives up in Liverpool. We copied her. We're working closely with her, her family to tell Gwen's story. Um, and again, you know, it's, it's that whole thing, I guess, about saying, okay, well, I can't be an expert in every clinical condition, but with the power of LinkedIn and Twitter and the internet and people like yourselves and a podcast, I'm, I'm able to find people who say, do you know what? I'd love to work with you on a project to do dentistry because the mannequins that we've got in dentistry don't work for us or they don't allow us to practice this particular thing. As we're getting more into it, more and more clinical conditions are starting to come up. People like the Downs is a is a great example. You know, Gwen is a little girl with Down syndrome, and there has never been a Down syndrome mannequin. And this is, you know, we're we're in twenty twenty two now. I can't believe that we've never had one. No, none of the manufacturers have ever tackled Down syndrome because, you know, it's not financially viable. I guess would be the reason. You know. Um, but, you know, you think about how many children have got cerebral palsy or are fused in wheelchairs or so many other things that I say, well, actually, I'd like to make one of those mannequins because I'd like to show everybody how difficult it is to manage the airway of a child with this condition or this condition. And then when the clinicians are able to go out there in the big wide world and meet these conditions for the first time, they can say, oh, it's OK, I've done this in training. I know what it's like. I, you know, I'm able to cope. None of us, none of the world had, had resuscitated a 22-week plus two-day-old baby prior to the age of viability dropping down to 22 weeks and two days. And there were no mannequins to allow us to train on that. The mannequins that we had were a lot bigger. Mm. And, you know, so overnight we started making smaller mannequins, giving those out to the, you know, neonatal units to help people prepare for, for that stuff. And, um, and, you know, we're starting to see the benefit of that now because, you know, more and more teams are being trained. You know, they're, they're starting to put processes and things in place to allow them to cope with these extremely small babies, uh, especially for inter-hospital transfers and, you know, uh, the baby being born somewhere, you know, somewhere like Poole where I live, but actually needing to go to Southampton for specialist care at that level because of the age of the baby and needing to have the right level of neonatologists around, you know. And, and it's it's fascinating, you know, really for me as a as an educator, I see so much change in the last six years. The great news is the big boys are starting to copy us, so um, which is always a good thing. And again, you know, we started off making old ladies. We made an old lady called Vivian, a copy of a, an actress called Vivian Bridson. Um, and, uh, you know, she was the first real, proper, really realistic elderly person. And now we look and, you know, a lot of our competitors are making older people now. And we think, thank God, because now, you know, more and more clinicians are being exposed to the older person, you know. So so we're quite happy to be sort of leading the way with a lot of those conversations, I suppose. It, that's a really good way to look at it and to not lose sight of the fact, you know, that when you're talking about Gwen and this, this mannequin that you've developed, I, I'm not from a clinical education background. I've told this to you before, but I am a parent yeah, and, you know, if my my daughter doesn't have Down syndrome, but if I did have a daughter like Gwen with Down syndrome, I would want I would well I think I would actually expect 
that medical professionals had had a chance to practice on um, in scenarios that are similar to, to dealing with with my my daughter before yeah out a procedure because you just never know with the way the NHS is stretched you know whether you'd have a junior doctor or a junior surgeon working on a on yeah. an incident um, so I think there really is this need and requirement to um, to prepare people within clinical training for all these different types of body types and um, yeah. in, in an effective way. And, and that's essentially, I mean, amazing what you're, what you're doing and, and making that immersive experience as real as possible. Gwen, Gwen's mum is my driving force. So uh, she's a lady called Cora. And she she sat, I sat with her, you know, when we first met Gwen. And she said, Dave, I need to explain to you what it's like. She said, you know, I send my, my daughter out every day and because people have been trained on mannequins that are normal in their anatomy, everyone expects that they're going to be able to manage Gwen in that way. But actually they can't. They can't tilt her head back because she has axial problems. And if they did that, they could snap her neck. If She's got a smaller jaw. So she needs a different technique than you would use on a, on a, you know, on a normal, healthy child of that age. And so we have to adapt all of our learning towards this you know this this child with down syndrome and that just blew my brain that every day she sends her child out petrified that the people that she gives her to to look after are not going to be trained in the right way on the right kit how to look after her daughter who could ultimately die because they've not had the right piece of education and if you track that back even further they're not being trained on a mannequin with downs and so therefore that the, the actual clinical skills they're losing, uh, they're learning, are not appropriate for a child with Down syndrome, and and that's the bit that blew my mind. And once I'd had that conversation with Cora, I was like, okay, we will do this. You know, we will get this message out there. Gwen is a joy, an absolute joy. You know, and I know we were sort of going way off track, but Gwen is an absolute joy. But her health issues, you know, she's had lots of times where she stopped breathing and needed help to, to start breathing again because she's got the larger tongue, the smaller jaw, you know, uh, she she has what they call hypotonia of her airways. So, you know, it needs support sometimes. She's had lots of surgeries to enable her to walk, you know, um, because she's got hyperflexive joints, which need to be tightened up every so often. So she's constantly going in for surgeries. She's got broader feet um, than the typical child of, of her size. So shoes don't fit and she struggles with walking as a result of her gait and there's so many things that i need to be able to sit down with every clinician and say do you know what what let me tell you about a little girl with down syndrome let me tell you about a little girl who stops breathing every so often let me tell you about her mum. let me tell you about her family you know and that's the beauty for me of, of having an immersive mannequin is i can show you what her feet look like. I can show you, you know, what her scars look like on her tiny body and where they've come from and what they were for. And then that makes sense to the learners. And, and the, you know, the problems with the way that we used to do education with this generic plastic is we never got those conversations. We never really got into the depths of that, of that learning. And I suppose that's what I mean by, you know, by having the, the sort of onion where I really want to just keep going and say, okay, let's layer that up a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Let's talk about, you know, uh, gait and, you know, how people walk and, you know, let's go there for a little while with a group of clinicians. 
So it's it's fascinating, really fascinating. So I guess the alternative to having an effective immersive education strategy within a learning environment is having clinical workers who are trained on the job. So they, they're trained in with tools that are perhaps not relevant to yeah. particular use cases. And then on the job, they're then reliant on their own intuition and skills to adapt yeah. there and then within a stressful environment or yeah. reliant upon more senior practitioners who are going to be available at that given moment in time to give their wisdom across at, in the middle of a procedure, which obviously you can't always no. plan for. You know, the way things are at the moment with how stretched um, our our uh, our hospitals are, yeah. you can't always plan for those environments. So right. having those mannequins or immersive um, systems in place which allow learners to learn a broader set of skills and have that confidence from the get-go, you know, it just seems like absolute common sense to me. I think it is, you know, I think, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not some rocket scientist sitting here. I'm, I'm saying I'm just a paramedic who just wanted to make a difference in terms of, you know, certain, certain key groups of people who were just not getting the sort of, you know, clinical care that they deserved. And, you know, the only way that I can influence that is through education, you know, as, as one guy, what am I going to do, you know, to spread the word, you know, so, so we use education as the tool. You know, and I think it's, you know, I think it's absolutely fascinating, if I'm honest. You know, we've been really lucky. We've now got the support of the Down Syndrome Association here in the UK. We've got um, uh, Gigi's Playhouse, which is an American organization. You know, Gwen herself, we're sponsoring her to go over to Disneyland for a week um, in January with her family. And then to pop into the Simulation Congress over there so she can, again, be alongside the Gwen mannequin. And, you know, and we can start and wake the... USA up to you know what immersive education is really all about and you know and embracing people's individual natures but at the same time understanding that you know there are specific clinical differences that need to be managed in this in certain patients to 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 go back just 2 seconds when i was trained i was trained on real people <laughs> i'm old enough that it was okay um, I was trained in the army, so we practiced everything on each other, including putting tubes down our noses and into our stomachs and vomiting left, right and center and oh, underhydration wow. and overhydration, all the things that you don't want to do. I used to go to postmortems, you know, on a regular basis to be taught my anatomy. You okay. know, those things, those things are not really done in that way anymore, you know. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it's a shame. And I'm sure there were some benefits to learning in that way, but at the same time, there's obviously ethical questions there as, uh, as well. There's there's ethical and there's health and safety. And yeah. and I think, you know, um, bizarrely, you know, it was okay for us to be putting each other at risk. You know, it was perceived that way. We were putting IV lines in each other every day and, you know, intraosseous and all sorts of other things that, you know, these days would be really frowned upon, you know. but but um, But at the time... It was a fascinating, absolutely fascinating way because, A, you knew what it felt like to have it done to you. B, you know, you were getting to practice the skills every few days and we weren't really hurting anybody other than our, our fellows on our course. You know, it was, was crazy times, but it made me a really good clinician, you know, and that's I suppose that's the, that's the key, you know. That was how it was dealt with in the 80s, yeah. So obviously, you know, as much as immersive education can progress, it's never going to be exactly the same as dealing no. with 
with a stressful environment there and then when, when it happens. But we can make strides towards making things more, more realistic. And we've clearly discussed already about how you've been doing that in different ways with, with examples like Gwen. Going forward in the future from here, so where, where you've seen immersive mm. education progress up to this point, what do you think are the next chapters for immersive education as a sector, as a concept? Yeah. How do you think education, immersive education is going to transform in the next five, 10 years? And what do you think is going to be key to leading that transformation forward further? I, I think there's some fascinating blended solutions starting to come up now um so mixed reality um and again we're really lucky that again on linkedin as an example we've got professor bob stone and you know he's he's one of the you know one of my personal gurus in terms of calling stuff out and saying well no that's rubbish it won't work or actually taking it to the next level bob's worked in in mixed reality for the last 30 years mm. and some of the stuff that he's been doing with the mod is a mixture of using a, a a sort of headset immersive classroom realistic mannequins uh temperature control noise control you know he's really pushing the boundaries and we've just seen some work that he's been doing with another team based down in australia to again keep pushing that 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 agenda forwards using using a hybrid of all of the technologies and all of the thoughts that we've we've all had and you know the great thing i think about the modern world is people are happy to share that stuff on linkedin or on twitter and so others can have a look at it and say ouch actually i could do that i could use that in in my world the other the I other mean, really collaborative, big collaborative learning is so key as well for things like this so, you know it's obviously one of the areas totally. we do a lot of work in as well yeah to totally the, the the best thing in the world you know i think the other for me is is i'm seeing a lot of stuff going on with holograms um, so we're seeing holographic patients. Really? And, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm really sorry, but obviously I'm not from this background. So what I'm picturing here is a character called Rimmer from Red Dwarf. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever if, seen that TV show with a big H on his, on his forehead. If you, think, if you think Rimmer, that's not far off. So really? there, there's a team called, um, uh, there, obviously you've got Microsoft HoloLens, which is a set of glasses where we can make a person suddenly appear sitting in a chair or lying in bed. And you can interact with them. That that has been around for about ten years now, but there's now uh, a new one, and I can't remember the name of it. But literally, you have—I want to say it, anyway, hollow patient or something along those lines. But you literally have something that looks like a, a telephone box, right? Where the representation of you. So you sit in front of a camera; it copies you. And then the the you suddenly is projected inside this telephone box as like, you know, here he is, here's Dave. And I, I just see that as an amazing way to expose us to patients because then you only need the one patient, you capture the video, you, you know, you, and, and the patient is there. Or you have one patient but being beamed around the world so lots of, you know, individual teams are able to see them. Um, and there's some, there's some fascinating stuff going on in, in that space, really, really exciting stuff. That absolutely blows my mind. And the telephone box kind of image. <laughs> it looks well. like a telephone box. I mean, yeah, it's just making me think of, you know, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure being like yeah. a precursor to the future. Um, I mean, that is yeah. insane that, that we've come that, that far already. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, shocked and amazed. Yeah. I think when you go to the sim conferences, there's a lot of that, you know, a lot of that really Gucci stuff there. Um, we we saw that we saw that one probably two years ago, but it's now really 
exciting. You know, I think it's really exciting. I think if you look, I mean, ABBA did it, didn't they, on their recent tour? It did, you know, yes. I think they had yeah. the holograms on stage and everyone was blown away. And and that sort of thing, I mean, that goes back, uh, you know, the, the technology behind sort of that stuff goes back to something called Rimmer's Ghost, um, which again, I think is, is like 1800s of how they used to make ghosts appear on stage and it was all smoke and mirrors. And, you know, so it's, it's not, you know, it's been around a long time in terms of how it's possible to achieve some of these things. But, uh, but we're seeing some good advances in that direction. I think the other one for me, the other really, the thing I'm struggling with, I suppose, is still um, getting people to understand flipping the classroom. Mm. You know, I think too many people are taught stuff that they already know. Yeah. You know, and I think I think the great thing about you know about yourselves and your team is you know the ability to have that conversation with people. If I was still in my NHS role with three thousand learners, you know, I would be definitely flipping the classroom and saying, "Guys, I need you. You know, I need you to prove evidence that you can do your jobs, and then we'll focus on the bits that you're not so good at, rather than you know this sausage factory mentality of everybody being taught the same thing every year." year on year on year nobody wants it you, you know again you look on uh, you look on twitter how many people are doing statutory and mandatory training and it's of such poor quality you know but they still don't know about kids with down syndrome or they still don't know about how to resuscitate tiny babies but they're taught how to hand wash or they're taught how to you know every year they're taught the same thing that drives me insane uh, you know it really does but I, I don't feel personally i'm in a position to be having that argument because I'm not in that role that I was in before. You know, all I can do these days is support yourselves, go into places and say, actually guys, there's a lot better way to get 5,000 learners engaged in, you know, in simulation than, than you're doing at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's that kind of argument of compliance versus learning in terms of curriculum and making yeah. sure that people are learning the things that are going to help them to, to save lives ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. So, um, and I know I'm we're conscious of time because I know you're a really busy sure. man and everything that you're going on. So, um, I, I, I want to just kind of um, finish off with one final question, if that's okay. So, sure. if we were to rewind, and you were go you mentioned about how you'd flip the classroom if you were still in that NHS role that, that you mm -hmm. head of education. Um, at Southwestern Ambulance Services. If you were still in a role like that now, what advice would you give to someone in that role with the learning that you've had since then in terms of what they can do to transform um, immersive education within within their trust? I, I think my first thing would be trust your learners. You know, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of cynicism about, you know, where are people at or are they going to cheat the system or whatever else. You'll get one or two people cheat the system but out, out of 3,000 learners, you know, but we seem to be so cynical, you know, uh, about that stuff that we put all of this regulatory compliance in around, we've got to prove it's them that did that skill at that time and sent us that piece of video. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. There's not going to be that many that, you know, that are going to, going to try and cheat the system anyway. I think the, um, I think if I was still in that, in that role, I think I would have, almost scrapped statutory and mandatory and turned all of that stuff into flipped. I would ask for video evidence collected on, you know, a daily basis, sent to their peers, peer reviewed, then sent to me for, or sent to my trainers for a level of review that says, yes, they're safe or they're unsafe in their clinical practice. 
and then you know i'll do a spot check as the boss every you know maybe every 50 patients i'd, I'd spot check one or something like that but i think there's so much time and money wasted on teaching people stuff they know versus not teaching stuff they should know yeah i think what i'm trying to say i think i've got that the right way around so i'd rather spend time with people teaching them stuff that you know about downs as an example rather than teaching them how to you know comply with you know hand washing they can wash their hands they can send me a video of them washing their hands box ticked right next one you know what other statutory or mandatory thing do we put you through you know basic life support can you imagine that? I've got paramedics out there doing advanced life support every year, but they still have to pass a basic life support session. How does that make sense? You know, how does that make any sense? And it doesn't. And and I think for for so long it was it was a tick box exercise. Unfortunately, it's carried on. Oh, I, when I think about things like this, you've got to think there's probably someone in an office somewhere crunching data and thinking, you know, if someone doesn't wash their hands effectively. These are the risks that could happen yeah. in terms of in, in virus spreading, viruses spreading, so on and so forth. So there is some kind of logic to it, but then at the same time, it's also taking into account, as you say, trusting your learners and knowing that a lot of the people that are coming into clinical training are highly skilled, conscientious people who, you know, want don't don't want to go into the profession to, to right. cause people harm. They want to do the opposite. And obviously, learning to wash your hands is something that you could teach. Uh, I mean, I've got a toddler. I'm teaching her to wash her hands now. She's picked it up straight away. Yeah. So, if you, know. if you can imagine a surgeon, if you can imagine a surgeon with all of the all of Ten the stuff of that they have to go education. through, yeah. you know, and then he still has to come in on a course every year to be taught about hand washing. How is he going to feel when you know he has to he has to you know wear all his PPE, he has to have all his technical knowledge? And when he comes in the classroom, it's oh, I'm here for my, you know, for my hand washing session. It makes no sense. Yeah. It makes no sense. You know, he's got scrub nurses. He's got all those other things that he has to worry about. But somebody somewhere says, oh, he needs basic life support. Okay, and he needs hand washing. GPs, basic life support, hand washing. You know, paramedics, basic life support, hand washing. Nurses out on the road. Nurses in the community, where everybody's being squeezed into the same squeeze box and it makes no sense and then there's also the argument about the time that it takes to do that stuff right so and the money and the money you know, yeah yeah of course yeah, i'm afraid i'm you know because i was the boss it's all about money so you yeah. know every every clinician that you know if we did some really simple basic maths every clinician 200 pounds a day okay if and i know they probably earn a lot less than that but let's say that they were 200 pounds a day to be in the classroom okay then you've got to backfill that individual. So now you've put another individual in. So that's £400 a day. Then you've got the tutor. So let's say he's £200 a day and so on and so on and so on. So you've got 10 learners in there. So that's £2,000 a day. You've got 10 learners backfilling the 10 learners that were in the classroom. So that becomes 4000 a day plus your 200 for your tutor. So 4200 a day just to teach rubbish. It so makes what- no so what you're basically saying is all these big trusts should just buy Vio instead and do flip learning. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've got you on record now. Okay, but you see where I'm, you see where <laughs> I'm coming from. It makes no sense to me. Vio no. is, a, is a fabulous solution 
for flipping the classroom and for saying, guys, why are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? It makes no sense to me. It makes no sense. I mean, these podcasts are not here to do to to have sales discussions or anything like that. But no. you know, I just couldn't resist because it was okay. just a clear, clear um, uh, a fit with with what we do. So, um, in terms of uh, in terms of these these trusts, less focus on pointless top box ticking activities, more focus on learning that actually matters. Yeah, absolutely. If we could, if we could have that as our mantra, I'd be a very happy man. You know, I was that man. I wasted a lot of money teaching. You know, teaching stuff that people knew, ticking boxes, making my staff unhappy because those boxes were being ticked. You know, and and now that I'm outside of that, I can see it a lot clearer. I think that's the beauty of not being in that position. I um I know I said I had one last question, but you've been such an engaging and fascinating guest. Um, I just want to ask you one more, which is a little bit off-piste, if that's okay. That's okay. Um, and quite topical. So at the moment, we're facing a bit of a crisis within the health service within the UK. And we've heard news recently that paramedics are potentially going to be going on strike. Yeah. For the first time ever in history, right before um, Christmas. How do you, uh, with your experience and the roles that you've done in the past, how do you feel about that? And what do you think? So when, it's not the first time ever. The ambulance service went on strike in 1986 or 1987. Um, and I well, that, Sorry, the, can I just say that's terrible research on my part, so I apologise. That's all right. So, so we did actually go on strike once before, and I joined the ambulance service six months after everyone had been on strike. Um, and it was a very horrible place to join at that time because some people striked, some people didn't, some were scabs, some weren't. And we had all of that stuff going on. And this is late eighties, you know, um, and a lot of that carried on actually that bad will that happened. Um, I think if I was still in the ambulance service now, I would, you know, cause I know they're bringing in the military as an example, you know, and I would have a lot of sympathy. I see guys in corridors and, you know, I, I was, um, I was talking to a crew, <laughs> we were talking about simulation the other day. And they said, yeah, but Dave, we don't do a simulation of standing in the corridor for 10 hours. But that's the reality of the life that we're living. They say, you talk about reality. The reality is put me in a corridor for 10 hours with a single patient because that's what my days have become. And, and I think that's, that's horrific. You know, I'm not, I'm not a political person. And, and I know that in my, in my heart of hearts, people join the ambulance service to do good. You know, that's why, that's why all of us went into that. You know, yes, you want fa fair pay. Yes, you want, you know, you want to be recognised for what you do. I think a lot of those people put their lives at risk, and there were a lot of deaths of ambulance people in, during the pandemic. In my eyes, in my eyes, they're superheroes. Like, yeah, if you look at the, the pandemic. I mean, they are absolute superheroes. But, you know, a lot of them died in the pandemic, and it doesn't get spoken about. You know, how many paramedics died or ended up in intensive care because they caught COVID during the pandemic. So, so I have a lot of sympathy, you know, real lot of sympathy for my crewmates. And some of my friends are still obviously out on the road. Mm. I think, you know, for me as an individual, I, you know, um, I would currently be training the army medics to be able to cover, to provide the life, life-saving support. And, you know, that's when you get to that strategic level, I guess that's what, you know, what you are thinking about is how can we deliver the best service you know, but those army medics, having been one of those, those army medics are on 
maybe a hundred pounds a day if they're lucky and the paramedics are on 200 pounds a day and the army medics are covering them and there's all those politics about it as well but the army medics will enjoy the experience because that's what we learned from you know from covering the strikes when we were army medics you know is that actually it you know it gives you exposure to things that you'd never normally see in the military you know old people as a as a great example you know they'll become very good at that stuff as a result yeah but I guess presumably now with the way, um, you know, the, the world is heading and with things that are going on in Ukraine and so on and so forth, we can foreseeably see a future where army medics may have to deal with, you know, casual, civilian casualties uh, on, on the front line who are, who are older, right? Changed. Yeah, I mean, they've done a lot of humanitarian work over the last 25 years. And I, and I would say, you know, they're a lot more exposed to children you know, as part of their education than we were in the 80s. You know, when, when I joined the army, it was post Falklands just, and, you know, uh, it, it was all, you know, it was all adults. You know, um, we weren't even taught that much about female anatomy, believe it or not. Um, wow, yeah. there, weren't, there weren't that many girls fighting in the front line. Obviously now that's that's changed dramatically. And I think there's been a huge amount of change over the over the last 50 years. You know, the the, the politics of the striking, I think, is you know, is, is something for somebody else to, to talk about. But, you know, I do have sympathy for the for the people, especially, you know, the families and friends of those who died who were paramedics, you know, out on the road. And there are many of them. It's, it's just an unspoken about part of it. Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and hopefully we can do this at some point in the future again. That's great. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye.